Welcome to the Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. The Bible reading, <coughs> sorry. The Bible reading portion for today is taken from the Book of Philippians, chapter two, verses one to eleven. Philippians chapter two, verses one to eleven. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on, uh, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Praise the Lord. We live in a world where role models are continuously paraded before us. Sometimes they are not just paraded before us, but they are thrust upon us. We had this boy couple of years senior uh, to us staying in our apartment building. He got into this prestigious IIT, the Indian Institute of Technology, and then he got into the Elite, IIM, the Indian Institute of Management. Now this was one boy who was thrust upon some of us. Somebody grew up in the wrong apartment building. This was a role model many parents wished for their kids to become. Of course, we've all had our role models as uh, we've journeyed along in life. One of the role model some of us boys wanted to be was Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Do you remember him? The one who would nerve pinch his opponents and they would fall unconscious. And then there was some cricketer or some footballer. And life went on and on. Your role models kept changing according to who or what you wanted to become. But the more we try to imitate these role models, the more 
we recognize how we fall short of the aspirations we have, how temporary they are. And it's only as we look to Christ that we can see a role model who doesn't want us to perform, but who wants us to trust in what he has already done. Today's sermon is titled, Christ, Our Role Model, to enable us to consider and trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross. You know, it's, it's in Hollywood movies and Bollywood movies that it's the villain who dies and the hero who lives. But here we find a role model who has died so that you and I may live. Before we delve into this, today's passage, let's look at a quick background of where this passage is placed in scripture. It's in the book of Philippians. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls the church in chapter 1 verse 1 as saints in Christ. And Paul is writing this from during his imprisonment in Rome. And in chapter 1, Paul is giving three responses to the gospel. How the church should respond to the gospel. In verse 3 to 7, or rather 3 to 11, he talks about the fellowship of the gospel. In verse 3, he tells them, I remember you, which means he has them in his mind. In verse 7, he says, I hold you in my heart. And in verse 9, he says, I have you in my prayer. Now, true Christian fellowship flows from this. Remembering people, holding them in love in your heart, and placing them continuously before the Father's throne. And then there is a second response Paul uh, asked the church to come forward with. This is in verses 12 to 26. You know, there, are, there is this group of people in 12 verse 26. Paul recognizes there are a lot of unsaved people. But then there is also this group of people who have been preaching the gospel with wrong motives. And Paul being Paul doesn't really care how the gospel is preached, whether in pretense or in truth. But he says, I rejoice as long as Christ is proclaimed. So Paul is addressing the church and telling them how important it is to look at the furtherance of the gospel. And then we look at a third response in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, where Paul is pointing out enemies of the gospel, opponents of the gospel, and he's telling the church how they must stand together to fight for the faith of the gospel. So when you keep these three pillars of fellowship of the gospel, furtherance of the gospel, and fighting for the faith of the gospel together, that is how we journey into chapter 2. In fact, chapter 1 verse 27 to 30, Paul has already begun to say what he's saying in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. He says, be of one mind, strive together in one spirit, only let the manner of your life be in a manner that glorifies God, that is worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul being Paul was a pragmatist and a realist. He never hid the realities of suffering for the gospel away from the church. But Paul used these realities of suffering as a springboard to exhort the church by pointing the church to Christ. For Paul, his life and doctrine was integrated. And his message and his ministry were an outflow 
of how the gospel had turned his life around. And so as we journey together this morning, shall we pray a quiet prayer to the Lord? Lord, let my life and my doctrine be integrated as the gospel permeates every area of my life. As a church, we've been doing this short five-part series on how we have to be saved and shaped by the gospel. In week one, we looked at the bad news, the depravity of man. Man, there is no goodness in man. Man is depraved. He cannot save himself. In, on, in week two, we looked at the good news. How rich is the grace of God? How great is God's grace in our lives? So rich that there is a righteousness provided for us to be in Christ and to, and to be what God has planned for us to be. In week three, we looked at the forward back effect of the gospel. Christ has resurrected and gone ahead of us. How does that impact our lives as we live here today? So Christians, wake up from your spiritual slumber is what we looked at in week three. In week four, last week, we looked at the inside out effect of the gospel. How our righteousness must come from the gospel penetrating the inner realities of our heart Otherwise, how the external expressions of our faith are going to work for us false righteousness that will lull us into spiritual dullness. And this morning, we look at the upside-down effect of the gospel. Now that Christ has gone ahead, how we must live now? Christ came as a human. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. But how does that impact us as a church this morning and in a world that considers meekness as weakness and might as right the church can be greatly influenced by the world when we respond even though we have the gospel within us and this morning can we ask the Lord to make that paradigm shift in our life in our relationships where we respond to the world just like the world responds to us and say Lord Give us values and behaviors that are contrary to the culture of this world. I have three points for today's sermon. Unity in our relationships, verse 1 and 2. Humility in our obedience, verse 3 to 8. And exalting Christ in our worship, verses 9 to 11. Unity in our relationships. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with a series of four ifs. If there is any encouragement, if any comfort, if any participation in the spirit, if any affection and sympathy. Now Paul is not using these ifs to suggest that these are not realities. He is not making these as possibilities for the Christian, but he is saying this is the true fellowship a Christian enjoys when he journeys with God. And then Paul quickly moves into verse 2 where he says, have the same mind and the same love for each other. So if you've got to split verse 1 and 2, you could even say that verse 1 is about our walk with God and verse 2 is about our walk with each other. And because we are in Christ, or as some versions say, because we belong to Christ, Paul tells us in verse 2 to be of the same mind and having the same love. Now there is a call to be united in our relationships with each other as we strive together for the gospel. 
but we know the reality of our lives that this is easier said than done. And sometimes we are frustrated, even with ourselves, at how this unity doesn't come together. But to understand the challenge to maintain unity in our relationships, we must look back into the book of Genesis, where God, man's oneness with God and his unity with fellow brethren was so badly fractured. In Genesis 2, when the woman was created, Adam said, this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In verse 24 it is written, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united or hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There was a sweet unity, there was a sweet oneness before sin came into humanity. But once sin entered creation, this unity was ruptured. Evidence of this disunity is written for us in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 12 and 13, Adam says this to God, The woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me this fruit and I ate. And then when God asks the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And we get further clarity of this future disunity that is going to come when in verse 16 God tells the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The word desire is used here negatively. The word desire is used in the same sense that God is telling Cain in chapter 4 verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. It, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Gone was the oneness of relationship between man and God and unity between man and fellow being. In place of that, it was nothing but blame culture. It was a case, literally, of each man for himself. So, when you send and receive I am one upon you type of emails and texts, remember where this came from. Sin brought into natural man the desire to be one up on the next person. And as we journey through life, we know how easy it is for conflict to de develop between two people in a relationship, even within the church. If you have read Peanuts comics, there are these two characters, Linus and Lucy. Linus tells Lucy that one day he wants to become a doctor. And Lucy says, you can't become a doctor. You don't love mankind. To which Linus replies, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. And there are times when God's people are so difficult to get along with. And so it is also at such times we must remember the beginning of the gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his son. So we must apply the upside down effect of the gospel which must become a reality in our life because of what Christ has done on the cross for us to reconcile us to God and with each other. So many times we enjoy fellowship with God and we also enjoy fellowship of the gospel with believers who agree with us, who love us, who reciproc reciprocate to us the way we respond to them. But there are always a group of de uh, believers with whom we disagree, with whom we find it difficult to click 
in whatever way. And Paul is basically telling us, remember in chapter 1 he's talking about the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel and fighting together for the faith of the gospel. There is a furtherance of the gospel that is required in each of our lives, not just fellowship of the gospel that we enjoy with those whom we enjoy. Now, there are two ways you can spell the word right, R-I-G-H-T, right. You can either spell it with a small r or with a capital R. The small r says, I am right and you are wrong. And this may well be true. But the capital R says, I am right and you are wrong. But the righteous God reached out to me when he was right and I was in the wrong. So I am going to be right with a capital R. Even when I am right and when my brother or sister is in the wrong, I am going to step out the way God stepped out for me. I am going to step out and initiate reconciliation and restoration so that I bring unity in my relationships before God. And believe me, when you start doing this, you will find that this is easy because God is going to bless you with that. Otherwise, we have this mental block in our lives where we keep saying, I am right and you are wrong. And the church can be filled with people who are not living out the furtherance of the gospel in the journey of sanctification. Now, being united in our relationship is not just about the furtherance of the gospel with believers whom we may disagree, but it also relates to strangers and enemies of the gospel. You know what Jesus says in John 10 verse 16. He says, And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Look at the vision of Jesus. Not just fellowship of the gospel, with those whom we love and agree with, but furtherance of the gospel with those who are unsaved and with those, remember that section is about those who are preaching also Christ with false motives. Okay, and then the enemies of the gospel, strangers of the gospel, they must come in to God's fold. Do we have the same vision of God when we look at the furtherance, the fellowship and the fighting together for the faith of the gospel? Previously, before we knew the Lord, we lived somehow by managing each other, at times relating, at times confronting, and at times avoiding each other. We lived a life of disunity or selective unity. But now in Christ, because of the finished work of Jesus, we are now a family. We are now part of what God has planned for us so that we can now, as Paul says in verse 1, we are comforted in our tribulations, we can participate in the work of the Spirit, and as verse 2 says, we can be of the same mind, having the same love. I just want to say this for clarity, that unity is not uniformity. Just because we have the same mind and the same love does not mean that we agree everything with each other, but it certainly means that we accept each other even when we don't agree with each other. Same mind is about contending together for the gospel with our brothers and sisters, so much so that we are able to relate rightly to each other and even to those who are unsaved. Because it is possible 
that instead of striving and fighting together for the faith of the gospel, we may be striving and fighting each other. Now God is directing, directing us to allow the mind of Christ as revealed through the gospel to form and shape us. Remember, the gospel is not just about being saved. The gospel is also about shaping us into the character of Jesus. And this <coughs> definitely has to do with enjoying our relationships with each other. When Paul tells us about same love, he's talking about abounding love and discerning love. Remember what he says in chapter 1 verse 7. And this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Some versions use that word insight, some versions use the word understanding, but the reality is this, you cannot have Christian fellowship without love that is abounding and discerning. And each person in the body of Christ, God is expecting us to have the same love for each other. Otherwise, verse 4 that tells us to not only look after our own interests, but also to the interest of others will never become a reality for us. To quote Warren Wearsby, whenever you meet an unsaved person, you can love him because he's somebody for whom Christ died. And whenever you meet a Christian, you can love him because he's somebody in whom Christ lives. Is there somebody in your life you are trying to forget, avoid, or confront? You may not feel like loving this person, but Christian love is God's divinely supplied love that flows in to us and through us onto others who don't deserve to be loved. Christian love says, I treat you the way God treats me. There is a unity among the church that Christ desired. And in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays that the church may be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And in verse 21 to 23, there is a point that is repeated. It's how the world would know about our oneness. The world would know because of our oneness that Jesus has been sent by the Father and that the Father loves the world even as the Father has loved the Son. Church, our unity is what tells the world about Jesus. Our unity is what points the watching world to Christ. And Paul is saying this unity is so critical. And you know why he would say that? We've experienced in some of our churches and fellowship. He talks about how to stand together for the faith of the gospel, fighting those who are opposing from outside. But we've experienced it at different times. When Satan cannot find inroads from outside, he will try it from the inside. So let each of us be guarded in our motives. Let each of us recognize that being in Christ, belonging to Christ, is what is going to keep us united in our relationships with each other. The second point I want to bring to you this morning is about humility in our obedience. In verse 2 and 3, Paul is telling the church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others 
more significant than yourselves. And let each of you not only look at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The problem with sin is that I is in the middle of the word sin. And when God created the world, there was a pattern and a flow to life that existed. But when sin came into the world, there was a new normality that came in. A new normality that was disorderly, confused and muddled. A new normality that said, me and my needs come ahead of others. Now the desires of the sin of sin are very clear sometimes it's out there in the open sometimes it's very subtle but selfish ambition the world calls it when the world says somebody has got drive it's another word for saying that person has got selfish ambition you know for the world selfish ambition is an admirable quality to have but for a christian selfish ambition is a fruit of sin and we must live with the discernment and the knowledge that selfish ambition makes us short-sighted and keeps us away from the big picture of salvation which God has planned for us. Paul is warning the church against selfish ambition. In chapter 1 verse 17, he has already pointed out to a group of people who are proclaiming Christ with selfish ambition. Most of us don't like to be told that we are selfish. But if we were to do a deep dive and look at the motives for what we do, there will be times when we would have to tell ourselves, yes, I am selfish. And when you are confronted with that, what you do with what you have is going to be the real deal breaker for you. When, if God is speaking to you this morning about any area of your life, <laughs> very legitimate, Everybody does it, but if the Lord is telling you, this is selfish ambition, will you turn your life around based on what God is telling you this morning? So, as Christians, even though we struggle, we must know the victory is ours. We are working from the victory that Christ has given to us at the cross. And so, we must be vigilant, and especially in church. Paul, Remember, Paul is writing this to a church. We must ensure that there is no competition or rivalry. Because this is what keeps the unity in our relationships and enable us to really see who Christ is and how he has lived among us. Verse 3 to 6 actually tells us the difference between selfish ambition and godly ambition. Paul is reminding us to dethrone our selfish ambition and to focus on God and others through humility, which is a sign of godly ambition. Godly ambition is focused on God and fulfilling His will. When you walk with godly ambition, you trust and believe and agree with God's word about you and believe in God's purposes for you. Godly ambition positions you to become the person God wants you to be. And it is godly ambition that tells the watching world that you are Christ's representative, his ambassador here on earth. So while selfish ambition focuses on what you can get, godly ambition focuses on what you can give. I recently read an article about the Great Depression in the 1930s, the financial crisis which impacted the world at that time, including the church. 
Many churches had to do cutbacks on their mission programs and at their seminaries. At one of the seminaries, several of the professors were going to have to be let go because of the financial crisis. And the professors started lobbying with the administration who should stay on at the seminary and who should not. But this lobbying is not in the way that you and I would expect. Several of the older professors went to the seminary president and said, listen, we've had our day. We are older. We will make it somehow. The younger professors have had no time to save money. They have young families. So please keep them at the seminary. So the seminary president, president said, at the same time, the younger professors were coming to him and saying, listen, we are young and strong. We can make it in other jobs. Our students need the years of accumulated wisdom of the older professors here who can mentor the students much better than we can. So for the good of the school and for the benefit of the students, please keep the older professors on at the seminary. So you have this amazing situation faced with critical layoffs. Each group is trying to save the job of the other and they are truly displaying what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2 that we need, should not merely look after our own personal interests but also for the interests of others. Now looking out for the interests of others should be something naturally that must be seen in a Christian because that is what Jesus did for us. And if we learn to put others ahead of us we will enjoy the sweetest unity that we can have within any church. Nothing can hinder. Satan cannot find any space to enter in. But if we do not learn to put others ahead of ourselves, it doesn't matter what else we do as a church. We are going to be selfish. We are going to be self-interested in ourselves only. And we'll get all the conflict and division that comes along with it. When Paul tells the church not just to be having selfish ambition, he's also saying do not be conceited. And some of the translations use the term vain conceit or vain glory. Vain conceit is excessive pride or self-esteem that has no foundation in reality. It is an incorrect and elevated and inflated view of oneself. People who are filled with vain conceit think they are better, stronger, and more capable than they really are. And this applies to anyone who thinks that they have made it in life without the help of God. Therefore, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit means not letting our actions be motivated by selfishness, pride, or one-upmanship. Sometimes, the teaching found in scripture is difficult to apply because it is hard to understand. Other times, it is difficult to apply to our lives because it is incredibly clear to understand. The problem for us in Philippians 2 verse 3 can be that it is incredibly clear to understand. 
There is no room for misinterpretation. And this is where selfish ambition can say, let me do the bare minimum to oblige God and serve myself. And this is where godly ambition can say, let me do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's exhortation did not stop just with saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. We would have been happy if it had, the verse had stopped there. But he wants us to go one, one more rung up. He says, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. What does it mean to consider others to be more significant? How does the word apply here in this passage? The word significant does not mean more valuable or a more significant person. But it means more important. Considering the needs of others. Putting the needs of others first is what is significant here. And this is true in marriage. It is true in parenting. It is true in relationships. And it is true in the church of Christ. So in, when Paul say, tells us in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word look here means to contemplate, to gaze on, to focus on. So church, I want to ask you this morning, what are you focused on in life? Your needs or the needs of those around you? Christian fellowship flows from overcoming inconveniences and obeying godly convictions so that we are able to serve those around us by keeping them ahead of us. But that doesn't mean that you neglect yourselves. It just means that you look out for how to serve others better. Because Christian care is an intentional and relational walking together in faith, hope and love as we build each other into maturity in Christ. And for this Paul says, consider Christ's humility. Jesus humbled himself to the greatest degree, the cross, because he counted us more significant than himself. In verse 5 and 6, it is written, Have this mind yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus started at the highest place. Equality with God. This verse speaks about Jesus' pre-existence. Long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, long before he created the world, from eternity, Jesus shared eternal glory with God the Father and God the Son. Jesus has always existed as God. He is in very nature God. He is equal to God. You can't start any higher than that. And yet, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. The word grasped here means to seize something for yourself. Jesus traveled to the lowest place, emptied himself, or as some translations say, made himself nothing. He poured out himself in love for you and me, in humble obedience to the Father. Let's quickly look at four downward steps that Jesus took in his journey of humble obedience to the Father. 
he became a servant. The word servant can be translated as slave. And remember who is a slave? A someone who has no rights. Second, he became a human being. He felt what it felt to be a created being. He humbled himself in human likeness. Third, he became obedient to death. This doesn't mean that Jesus was obedient until the time he died, but that his death was actually a part of his obedience to God. And fourthly, he suffered the humiliation of the cross. To die on the cross was the most shameful, cruel, despised, public, shameful way of dying. But Jesus had it even worse. By his death on the cross, he was suffering the wrath of the Father so that he could pay the full penalty for your sin and mine. The Son of Man, became, Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. So in true Christian fellowship, we humbly try to serve each other, caring for each other's needs, especially the greatest need of those around us who do not know Jesus, their need for salvation. So true fellowship, fellowship of the gospel is not just having a holy huddle, coming together with those whom you love and whom you agree with, but in the furtherance of the gospel among those who are unsaved, among those who don't get along with and fighting together for the faith of the gospel. It was the Father's will to send His Son so that those who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Christ found purpose in the Father's will. As Christians, can we make it our godly ambition to find our purpose in God's will for us? This we can understand only if we truly see how much Christ has done for us and understand the fullness of his love for us. It is at this point of our understanding in our journey that selfish ambition and vain conceit will begin to melt away. So how can humility leading to obedience be applied to our daily life? It can mean not responding to that email or not honking that errant driver. Everything in our flesh is focused upon protecting what is ours. We have this mantra, this mindset that we live with. If we don't take care of our own needs and what we deserve, who will? And it's only when we understand what Christ has truly done for us that we can willingly acknowledge that maturing in Christ means giving people a piece of your heart when you want to, what you want to really give them is a piece of your mind. I just want to say this. Humility is key to obedience because obedience without humility is going to make us legalists and tyrants. It is only humility with obedience which will make us true servants of Christ. A question so to ask ourselves also is, is God glorified in the all the obeying that we are doing? Or do we have that urge to obey that we may be glorified by those around us? So just as the cross was God's way of allowing what he hated to achieve 
what he loved. Can we allow what we may truly hate, giving up our rights for others? Two, enable ourselves to be modeled after Christ so that the truth of the cross might be reflected in our life among those around us. The third point I want to bring to you this morning about, is about exalting Christ in our worship. Verse 9 to 11 tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We live in a world where people want to make a name for themselves. What's in a name? Well, we find our identity in our name. Our name shows everyone who we are in terms of our achievements and perhaps even in terms of our character. But the more we try to create a name for ourselves to glory in, the more we will be involved in self-worship. Name and fame go together and for those of us who want to be or want to have more than what God has planned for us, we may end up realizing that in our pursuit of what we yearn, we may even lose what we already have. And this is what happened to Adam. In Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5, the devil assured Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of this, of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Being like God was a desire of man which was aroused by the temptation of the devil. Man yearned to be like God, knowing good and evil. But in all this, Adam forgot his true identity which God had given him. In Luke chapter 3 verse 38, in the section of reverse chronology, we find that Adam is called the son of God. Adam had already received the highest recognition in his relationship which God had planned for him. But yearning for what he wanted more than what God had planned for him led him to his downfall and along with him fell all of humanity. Man was then driven out from the presence of God and since then sinful man could never stand in the presence of holy God. Fallen man then tried to find meaning, meaning to life, to try and achieve a name for himself separately from God. We read in Genesis 11 verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. The Tower of Babel was all about name and fame of man. Contrast the Tower of Babel, the lifting up of the Tower of Babel with the lifting up of the cross of Christ. Lifted up for all to see and believe. One was lifted up to show the pride of man and the other was lifted up to reveal the salvation for man. As parents, when we give names to our children, we have certain aspirations. It may be a character trait that we want our child to have or it may be a role model whom we like and whom we hope our child would be like one day. 
So when our children, uh, especially you know, when they come before elders and the elders ask, what's your name? And the child tells their name, some of the elders say, oh, that's a nice name. Isn't that from the Bible? Or what? Oh, this is a nice name with a nice meaning. You know, it's a nice name, but it can't go any higher than that. But look at the name of Jesus. In Matthew 1 verse 21, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When he was named Jesus, it was God's purpose that Jesus be the source of salvation for all who believe. Jesus, by being obedient to the Father in humility, fulfilled the purpose of his name. And so God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name because the one through whom the world was created came in human likeness and redeemed his creation so that ultimately he is worthy to be called the Lord over all creation before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. The fact is this, that every knee will bow one day before Jesus as Lord, either willingly in this life or forcibly on judgment day. And as a church, we look forward to Christ's return, high and exalted, even as we exalt Christ. And as I wait, as we wait together as a church, can I ask you, when was the last time you meditated on the name of Christ? The name that is above all names. As you meditate on this name, you will find that your mind is filled with God's truth. And you will be taught what it means for this name to be Lord of creation and Lord over your life. You will also know what it means to be called by your name, Christian, which is the name you and I receive when we put our faith in Jesus. A Christian is one who belongs to Jesus because he has been redeemed by Jesus. And to those among us who have not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we don't want to motivate you with fear, but we want to present to you the reality of Jesus coming again. His first coming was for providing the way of salvation for you and me. His second coming will be to bring salvation for all those who are waiting for his salvation. Will you join with us as we together wait for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, as we wait for our salvation to be fully revealed? We hope you are encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.